love that surpasses all experiences, all the, the best experiences of love in my life are a faint comparison to the love that you have for me. And that can be said by every single person standing in this room. Lord, this evening we turn our attention to the cross. We turn our attention to what it is that is the, the door hinge in history that our whole world, our whole cosmos is different because of what happened at the cross and then on the third day, resurrection. So, Father, would you direct our minds this evening, help us to be in the right attitude, the right spirit. Thank you for preparation as we walk into the biggest weekend of the year of the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, would you just take a moment, say hello to someone around you as you're seated. Well, good evening. Welcome to everyone. Uh, Timberline community, welcome. If you are a guest with us, we also welcome you as well. This is, this is a, a, a unique weekend we're approaching. Today is a unique day as well. Um, two thoughts I've had going through my mind all week. One is that there is no day more important than Easter. It, it's like everything that we do, everything we're doing today, it's, it's, it's all about Easter. Without Easter Sunday, there's nothing good about Good Friday. It's just another Friday. But the reality is, another thought's gone through my mind, that preparation shapes celebration. Which is to say, the way you walk into something, this is true if you've gotten married, think about the preparation that goes into a wedding. If, if, if you've been studying for something, you've got a big test, and you, preparation went into that. Whatever it is, preparation shapes celebration. And so every day this week of what we call Holy Week, the church is for 2,000 years considered it this week of preparation. And today is like the most important day of that preparation to celebrate. And so we're gathering, we're doing, we're doing this Good Friday service in order to celebrate a day, a great day. But just for a second, I want to go back to another day. I want to go back to the first day. Not, not the first day of the week. But the first day of history, the first day of the cosmos. In fact, the book of Genesis uses this language to talk about it. Listen to this. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. On the first day of the physical world, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. And it says, darkness was over the surface of the deep. And, or you could say, however... The Spirit of the Lord was moving over that same surface. And then we're told the very first thing that God says, or the first thing we're told anyway, that he says, is let there be light, and there was light. Why is that? See, the reason God said let there be light is because of what we just read in the previous verse. Because of what was over the face of the deep. Darkness. 
So one of the first things I would suggest we learn, just cracking the pages of Scripture, is that this is what God does. He moves into dark places, and he speaks light, and darkness is dispelled by this. He dispels darkness with light. And see, our very first parents, Adam and Eve, who were created on another sixth day, like today, were placed by God in a five-star, eco-friendly garden resort. (laughs) And they were commanded to lean into things like sexuality and relationships, creating culture, beautifying and sub-designing creation, and, and all of it was to be completed, was to be jumped into, was to be engaged with in, in, in like fulfillment, like in joy. And they were told, when you do this, you're going to flourish. Your life's going to be a flourishing. The only thing, the only thing is, don't put yourself in the place of God. Don't, don't substitute yourself for God. Because see, that's essentially what sin is, is to substitute ourselves for God. Yet one day, uh, to borrow the words of C.S. Lewis, what he calls the great divorce, Adam substituted himself for God. And it was like at that moment a a wall, no, better yet, a a veil. It's like a veil was moved in between God and the human family. And at that moment, with this veil in between them, it was like the human family found itself not... Not in the light of God's presence, but, but in, in the darkness of sin, in the tyranny of this sort of self-rule, this, this tendency to put myself in the place of God. And Adam chose death over life. He, told, he chose toil over flourishing. He chose despair over joy. He chose darkness over light. And this great veil drawn between us and God left humanity in darkness. And this is why centuries later, one of their descendants, the ancient Hebrew prophet Isaiah, speaking of what it like like what it's like to be human, our human condition, listen to his words. Isaiah fifty nine verse two and nine through ten says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. We hope for light, he says, but Behold darkness for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight. Our great divorce from God has has left us separated from the one who, who doesn't just have light. He is light. And so we are, we are moral and, and spiritual and, and, and emotional and social darkness. That's what we live in. And just as the psalmist says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. And so to be separated from God, consequently, is to live in darkness. Remember, of course, that's the description of Jesus of what hell is, darkest darkness. So when that first Adam in that first garden sinned, He was condemned to live and walk in a land of deep darkness. That's really interesting. If you go back in Israel's history, as you look back, there's there's one point where God told them 
that he said, okay, you want to worship me, and that's the appropriate thing. Um, there's, there's a certain way, though, when you're going to worship me, there's a certain way you have to do it. Okay, there's a certain way that it's going to look. And then, and then he goes about in certain books in the Old Testament, and he gives detailed, detailed descriptions of what their, their tabernacle, and then later their temple, their place of worship, is supposed to look like. The colors, the materials, what it's supposed to feel like, everything about it. And so in the, in the temple, there, there, there were wash basins, and there were candlesticks, and there were tables, and there were altars, and there were outer courts, and there were inner courts, and there was a holy place, and then there was a most holy place, and all of these things. But the most important thing of all was what was at the very center, the very middle of this temple place, and that was called the Holy of Holies. Of course, that's the opposite of darkest darkness. And there the Ark was, the Ark of the Covenant. This room was to be entered only once a year and only by the high priest. And this space, the Holy of Holies, represented the very presence of God. The sort of presence which that first Adam in the first garden divorced himself and us from so long ago. And separating that that most holy place from all the other places in the temple or all the other places outside of the temple, interesting, was a a great veil, a thick sort of curtain, this veil in between. And this veil symbolized the great divorce that had taken place so long ago from the first Adam in the first garden. But over time, a prophetic hope started to swell. There grew kind of whispers that somehow maybe the veil would not last forever. As in the words of that prophet Isaiah, this is on the front of your bulletin in fact, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. See, for something to dawn, it emerges it arrives it breaks or it cuts through and then many 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 years later when some had lost all hope and all had lost some hope a man emerged he broke through he arrived and he said things like this i am the light of the world whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life And just as the broken story of the human race began by a choice with a man called Adam in a garden, so the story of the one who would be called the second Adam would end by a choice in another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. But this time the choice was different. The first Adam said, I'll be God, I'll do my own will, not yours be done. The second Adam said... Also at night and in darkness, not my will, but yours be done. And so at night, in darkness, the second Adam surrendered himself at that moment to those who would nail him to a cross. And so they did. In fact, Luke tells us this. On a sixth day, a Friday... Luke says, it was now about the sixth hour, that's noon for us, and darkness, interesting, had fallen over the whole land until about the ninth hour, about 3 p.m., because the sun was obscured. 
and you could say and then or and because of the veil of the temple was torn in two and Jesus crying out with a loud voice said father into your hands I commit my spirit he said this Luke tells us and then he breathed his last see I would suggest this the only reason that a day which is characterized physically by being dark the only day or the only reason why a day like that would be would be called good friday is because of this because a veil was torn that ancient veil that went back to almost the very very beginning it was torn and what's really interesting and really important is where it was torn from. The authors tell us that it was torn from the top to the bottom. Now, why is that important? Well, when you tear something, you start from where you are. If you're going to tear something, you're going to start on the ground, something hanging high, and you'll go up. Where would God tear something from? From the top down. See, religion is humanity's attempt to tear the veil from the bottom up. That's the way it always is. It's the way it's always been. It's the way it always will be. Jesus is utterly, utterly, utterly different. Christianity is a top-down tear. It's God doing for us what we could not nor anyone else achieve for ourselves. So in this sense, this is, this is why the cross is, is, is anti-human religion. The cross is anti-self-help. The cross is anti-moral improvement. The cross is anti-self-discovery. It is anti-self-guided spiritual enlightenment. The cross is anti-spiritual pride and moral superiority and judgmentalism. See, to embrace the cross, and I mean with both arms, it means that I have to let go of anything else that my arms might be holding on to. This is why the great hymn, Rock of Ages, declares, Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling See, nothing in my hand can tear the veil upward as much as I try. I'm going to invite you over these next few minutes to uh, make your way in this room. We have, we have ten different locations or stations, and they're all marked by candles. Some are far in the back and some are in the middle, so you can go to whichever one is closest to you. And I'm going to ask you to take a little tiny piece of, of this torn fabric it's a, picture of, it's a picture of torn veil. It's a picture of the thing that separated us for so long from this God. It's, it's a picture of the great divorce. And to have a torn one in your hand, maybe it goes into your pocket, maybe it's in your palm. But let it be a reminder for you as we approach Easter that we no longer live with a veil between us and the source of our light and our hope. Parents, if you have children, bring them up with you, help them get one. And then when you're done, you can go ahead and return to your seats.
I'd like to say maybe just a little something um, to those of you who might kind of kind of question a lot of it all. You think about the idea of, of a veil, and maybe you felt that before, something like that, but, but maybe the idea of a God who would substitute himself, a God who would actually step into his own story. I don't know, maybe you have a problem with it. Maybe it just it feels a little odd, it feels awkward, something along, along those lines. Let me just give you two quick illustrations. In 1961, the Russians put a man into orbit. And afterwards, the Russian premier, Nikita Khrushchev, said something to the effect of, well, we've put a man into space, and we looked, and there's no God. So we proved it. Well, rationale's not that sharp of thinking, but if we were honest, a lot of people believe that very thing. C.S. Lewis, who was, who was once a very hardened skeptic and then gave his life to Christ, he said, you know, if, if, if there were a God, we wouldn't relate to him the same way that someone living on a first floor would relate to someone living on a second floor. You know, first person on the first floor, they can walk up the stairs and see the person on the second floor. But that's, that's not how we would possibly relate to God as though we can just go to another area or maybe go up in the sky. God is not just someone living in the sky. Think about the character of Hamlet, okay, in the Shakespeare, Shakespearean play. How much, how much would Hamlet know about his author? Well, nothing unless Shakespeare had written something of himself into the play, Shakespeare could run around on stage all day long or run around in the play and not find out anything about Shakespeare unless something had been written about him. In the same way, I would suggest we will never know anything about God unless he's written something of himself into this story, into our world, into our stories. Well, that's exactly what he's done. There's another author by the name of Dorothy Sayers. She was actually a friend of C.S. Lewis. She died in 1957. Uh, Dorothy Sayers was one of the first women to, to go to Oxford. She's most popularly known for a series of uh, kind of detective novels that, that she wrote um, called the Lord Peter Whimsey Stories. And this character that, that she created, Lord Peter, he's this English aristocrat kind of... Uh, uh, a detective on the side, an amateur detective, and he goes about solving crimes and that sort of thing. And he's a single man, and he lives all alone by himself. Well, in the middle of this series of books, a tall, not particularly attractive woman named Harriet Vine appears in the story. And Harriet is one of the first women to go to Oxford. And Harriet writes detective novels for a living. And she and Peter fall in love, and they get married, and they go out, and they solve crimes together. Why did Dorothy Sayers do that? People have asked that for years. Why did she do that? Many people have kind of speculated that, that Dorothy looked into the world she had created, and she specifically looked at this, this character, Peter, that she had created, and she saw how lonely he was. She saw his pain, and she fell in love with him. And then she wrote herself into the story just to save him. You see, that's exactly what God has done. God looked into the world that he had created 
And he saw us living in darkness. He saw us destroying ourselves. He saw, in the words of Isaiah that we read earlier, us being desperately hoping for light and brightness, but only finding darkness and gloom, like people without eyes groping about in darkness. And he loved us. And this filled his heart with pain. Genesis 6, 6 says that. It filled him with pain, and he loved us. And he saw us struggling as our own pathetic little gods, He saw us trying to tear the curtain from the bottom up. And he wrote himself in. Jesus Christ, the God-man, born in a manger, was born also as a substitute. Charles Dickens' famous uh, book that he wrote back in the 19th century, A Tale of Two Cities, tells in the book of of two different men, Sidney Carton and Charles Darnay. And Sidney and Charles only have one thing in common. They both love the same woman. <laughs> so they're kind of adversaries. Well, this woman chooses Charles, not Sidney. Well, by the end of the book, Charles, the one she chose, is arrested. And he's put into a dungeon. And he's set to be executed the next day. He has a wife. and He has a child. And he's going to die within 24 hours. And Sidney who looks just enough like Charles, sneaks into the prison, and he knocks Charles out, his former rival. And his friends take him to safety, and he puts on the other man's clothes, and he stays there to die in his place. And later we're introduced to this frail, raggedy-looking little woman, uh, a seamstress, who was also a prisoner, who was also on her way to the guillotine, and on her way there, she, she, she panics. And so she runs over to this man who she thinks is Charles, and she asks him to comfort her. Give me strength. Help me to go through this. I don't know how I can. Until she realizes it's not Charles. And her eyes get really big. And she whispers, are you dying for him? And he, and he hushes her. He quiets her down. He says, and for her wife and child. And this woman, blown away, blown away by the substitutionary sacrifice, says, oh, would you let me hold your brave hand, stranger, and something new grows inside her. There's this, And then she walks out to the guillotine with the sense of, I can do this. And he wasn't even doing it for her. See, our God does two things. He writes himself into his story, To save us from our our brokenness, our loneliness. But he doesn't do it to just go around solving crimes with us. He also breaks into our prison once he's there. And he crawls into our dungeon. And in our brokenness and destruction and sin, he substitutes himself for us. What else would make a day that is so dark like Good Friday good? See, Jesus' last act... On that Friday evening, just before walking out into the night, into the hands of his captors, who would nail him to a cross, he sits around a Passover celebration table with his apprentices. And his, his, his last act was to take the bread in the meal, to break it and say, this is my body, broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. 
and then to take a cup to pour the wine in the cup and then to say, this is my blood shed, poured out for you. It's my blood in a, and then he uses a unique phrase. Everyone in the Old Testament knew what a covenant was. Covenant was is an agreement, a way you have a relationship with God. Old covenant was this veil relationship thing. He says, but it's a new covenant. How is it new? Because there's no veil in this relationship. That's the difference. That's how it's new. And then he says, and whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim my death, which is what toward the veil, until I come. Again, I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward. If you have given your life to Christ, that might have been on a day long ago. Maybe that just happened. Maybe it happened today. I'm going to invite you to take the elements as they come by. There's a small piece of bread and there's a little cup with juice. And I'll invite you to take those, hold them in your hands... And wait for just a moment, and then we will come back and take them together.
on the night that Christ was betrayed, he took the bread and he gave thanks first and then he broke it. And he lifted it up to heaven and he said, this is my body, it's broken. Take and eat. Let's do that. In the same way, after the meal, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you and for many for the remissions of sins. It's my blood in a new covenant. Take and drink. Heavenly Father, it is with soberness, God, that we're so grateful. Not not sadness, but soberness. And God, may we be like one of the ones who came back to say thank you. Lord, as we consume these elements of the meal, the, the bread and the juice, we remember how, how Christ went out to consume the darkness. And, and each time we consume it, now included, God, may we proclaim, we are proclaiming, that, that we are the ones, we are the people walking in darkness who have seen a great light on us living in a land of deep darkness, a powerful light has dawned and we look forward to that dawning.
Father, thank you that when we were lost, when we were broken, when we were dead in our sins, as Scripture uses the language of, that it's then that, that when we had a charge against us, that you forgave us and you did that by canceling the debt that we owed. And we're told in the book of Colossians that you did that by, by nailing all those, all the guilt, all the accusations, all the debt. You nailed it to the cross. That's an uncountable number of nails for me, God. And so I'm grateful. I'm thankful. And so, Lord, we, we declare like, like your servant, John, that Jesus is the light of the world. And that those who walk in him walk in the light. And that light has come into darkness, but darkness has not overcome it. And so, Lord, while, while many of us even wear black today as a private reminder of what's happened, we look forward to the third day when we can wear white, when we can celebrate. That is our hope. That's our grounding. That's our meaning. That's our purpose in life. And when we come untethered from that, Father, would you draw us back? And we pray this, the strong, the powerful, the passionately loving name of our King, Jesus. And we all said together, Amen. Now for the benediction. As you go, may the peace of Christ, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts, your minds, as you await that celebration. On the third day, the celebration of his light, of his earth-shattering resurrection, whose impact shall be world without end. Amen? Amen. Go, and we'll see you Sunday or Saturday.